To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Hey everyone, Artie here. So, we got a bit of an untraditional episode for you today. Over the weekend, B and I spoke at the Socialism Conference in Chicago to debut some of the ideas that are going to be featured in our new book, Health Communism, uh, which comes out October 18th from Verso Books. So because we joined the conference remotely, we were able to take a high quality recording of our comments. And we were also able to add something that we didn't have time for, which is we were able to add a excerpt from the book to our comments, something that we kind of initially went over time on our talk for. So for today's episode, think of this as sort of a introduction to health communism. This is one of the first times that we've ever talked about the book publicly. Obviously, we've mentioned it on the show, but this is the first time we've kind of gotten into some of what the, the contents is. B and I are really excited to be finally able to start sharing some of what is in the book. This is by no means the last time that we'll be talking about it, um, but we hope that this gives you all a really good idea of the project that we've been working on and what you can expect from the book when it comes out October 18th. Um, and then sort of after our comments, there is a, and I want to emphasize this pretty much fully unedited, the, the Q and a session, um, appears on this recording after the, uh, sort of credits music that we do. So if you're interested in that, um, you can stick around for that. That's all from me. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over. We will be back in the public feed with an episode that we are all really excited about on Thursday until then stay alive in the week. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that introduction. Uh, we are, I am Artie Bierkant, and this is Beatrice Adler-Bolton. Um, we are the authors of Health Communism from Verso Books, um, which if you're at the conference, I believe you can get a galley copy still for free at their table. Um, and if not, it's out October 18th. We're going to be talking about that book today. Um, we also record, as Rosie mentioned, a podcast called Death Panel um, with our colleague Phil Rocco, um, which is about the political economy of health. So to get started today, we're going to walk through a couple of major sort of themes of the book. And then if we have time, time permitted, we're going to we have an excerpt of it that we would like to read. I guess to get started, there's sort of a preface to talk, us talking about the sort of greater project of health communism, which is to say everyone here today, I think, will be you know familiar with appeals or the discourse around socialized medicine, uh, Medicare for all for instance, was recently one of the main vanguard fights um, that left movements in the U.S. were engaged with, and obviously still, still now. Um, what we're going to talk about today, though, and what we wrote about, uh, what we wrote the book about, is this, which is that thinking kind of more expansively than those fights, and thinking about the uh, direct relationship that health has to and with capital, and the degree to which actually health is central to the project of capital. So therefore, movements like Medicare for All and the you know, sort of greater threat of socialized medicine, as it were, are not simply things the capitalist state rebuffs out of cruelty um, or 
sort of despite the state's own self-interest, as I think some proponents of um, healthcare as a public good tend to assert. Um, cruelty is certainly a part of it, of course, but instead, I think it's sort of crucial to understand socialized medicine as fundamentally a threatening thing itself to capital. And that's something that we should embrace and that in some ways the book is about um, embracing that threat that socialized medicine would make to capital. Now, obviously, uh, this conference is happening in Chicago. We know that in a U.S. context, it's common for people to point to uh, things like the U.K.'s National Health Service or NHS or to the Canadian healthcare system, for example. Um, we love to think in the U.S. that our sort of, you know, Anglophone neighbors or cousins or whatever have socialized medicine and we're uniquely cruel in not having it. But as we say in the book very early on, it's hard to imagine that what we conceive of and what we're really demanding when we demand something like socialized medicine, like health communism, um, truly exists in the world currently. Um, when we say Medicare for all, when we say socialized medicine, we mean uh, what we mean is, as uh, some have put it, um, like, like uh, Tim Faust, for example, the phrase all care for all people. Um, so, for example, while we could spend time, you know, pointing to things like the NHS uh, or the situation in Canada, as we say in the book, I'll just read a short quote from the introduction. Our trans comrades have fled the UK to continue their hormone therapy in the face of artificial barriers imposed by the NHS's gender identity clinic system. Our disabled comrades in Canada hold disdain for the social democratic politicians in the US who point to the Canadian Medicare system as a panacea that should be reproduced rather than the engine of austerity and repression that they experience it as. Um, despite having socialized medicine, uh, quote unquote socialized medicine, these social democracies are still at their heart imperialist and capitalist states. Um, as Vicente Navarro has written, quote, the British National Health Service is not a socialist island within a capitalist state. So um, again, what we're, what we're trying to argue for in health communism and uh, what I think B is going to pick up from me in just a moment is giving a way to understand the immensity of the task required to truly separate health from capital, um, going beyond something like talking about health finance reforms, um, much as obviously Medicare for all and, and other struggles are extremely important. Uh, struggles and components of health justice, what we could call health justice, for example, um, that fully kind of examining uh, the political economy of health as it is under capital and then working to at every point of uh, intersection, at every point where capital uses or wields health to separate them is something that is fundamentally would be uh, fundamentally threatening to capital and something that would would make it really difficult for our political economy to kind of continue on in the way that it is as murderously as it is. Yeah, I mean, I think people who know us through Death Panel might be surprised to find out that this is not a book about like how to do health insurance right or how to do health finance equitably <laughs> or even, I guess, like a book about the COVID response. But as we say really explicitly from early on in the book, you know, we understand health insurance companies for what they are, which is uh, financial institutions that are concerned only with payments for services rendered and uh, the sort of endless bureaucratic deadening management of risk. And the point is to go beyond equitable distribution within one country's boundaries. The point is to categorically move further as 
already said, health communism means all care for all people. Um, and while this is often expressed through, for example, like an appeal of need that everyone should receive the care that they need, um, we actually are advocating for a more expansive approach than this. Ultimately, the project tries to give shape to a broader political philosophy that doesn't just look at things in terms of the kind of austerity framework of need. Something that can guide left movements that are demanding universal care structures um, to try and engineer or push for dramatic expansions of social welfare supports or socialized medicine that don't engage in these kind of practices of means testing or of sorting out the deserving from the non-deserving. I mean, I think in terms of how we're pushing this project, there is no right or equitable way that we can rebrand health insurance to make it ethically capitalist. And I don't think that our movements have time to seriously consider retaining or reforming these institutions wholesale. There's no place for them in society, not just in the U.S. society and context, you know, beyond that. And I think one of the things that we were working on before the pandemic was already developing this lens through our project death panel of essentially looking at how health policy materially manifests in people's lives and how we economically feel the impact of the ways that we've decided that our care is supposed to be paid for. You know, how political will limits what we're entitled to in terms of housing, education, uh, healthcare, or even broader, you know, taking into consideration climate catastrophe, clean air, clean water. And when the pandemic happened, as soon as it happened, it was immediately obvious that the things that we were already talking about um, in Death Panel and on, on our project Death Panel, which is probably best known as a podcast, but is really more a multimodal collaborative political education project, um, you know, these, these myths that are seeped in austerity brain logic, like the idea of the threat and moral hazard of healthcare overutilization over became really serious narratives during the pandemic. Um, the idea that it's a serious problem that people are going to suddenly, you know, storm and overutilize and overwhelm our healthcare systems if we provide services for free is the kind of ideological hurdle that needs to be dealt with before we can socialize medicine. And you know, these pre-existing logics uh, are indicative of the direction where the pandemic was going to go. You did not need to be clairvoyant or see the future to see how this was going to play out. So this is why we deliberately do not also have a large chapter on COVID in this book, because for all the horrors of the pandemic, we're actually aware of no actions taken during it by states or private industry that are not explained in full by the pre-existing health capitalist framework that we lay out and articulate in the book. And I think while it's tempting to say, you know, oh, we've learned all these lessons from the pandemic and look at all these horrible things that, that have been done, you know, through these logics of austerity and through state abandonment, you know, I think it's actually abundantly clear that both no lessons have been learned from the pandemic and also that none of the pandemic's lessons were actually unknowns. These weren't things that we needed to learn. These were things that were already happening and readily evident in all sorts of different ways that health is commodified. So this is why we're not arguing for reforms or healthcare policies or pandemic policies in this book, but ultimately we're arguing for a new political economy of health. And I guess this is also key to mention, health communism is an essentially internationalist approach to reclaiming health, not just for workers, but also for those who are marked as surplus for all people. 
And that's because we cannot separate health from capital by fighting for minor reforms that just perpetuate this segmentation and policing of borders and boundaries between both who's deserving of care and who's not deserving of care, but also between you know state to state, both within the United States and outside of the borders of the United States. And that's why it's important to recognize that even as we fight for policies like Medicare for all in the United States, that the task at hand is actually much greater than one program could ever capture. If we're going for the total reformation of the political economy of health, and in so doing, the reformation actually of the entire political economy, then we have to consider Medicare for all not just as a fight for American health care, but also a fight that's going to influence, for example, the fight to privatize the NHS, the fight to privatize the Canadian healthcare system, the fight to maintain vaccine apartheid. You know, what happens in our borders here in the US does not stay here. And ultimately, the future of our struggles are international. And so that's part of what we're really trying to argue is beyond individual policy prescriptions or responses to discrete, um, ex you know, exceptional events like the COVID pandemic, there's a pre-existing structure that needs to be interrogated, and that's what we're trying to show. Yeah, and I think this is all sort of preamble to talking about what some of the, again, the specifics of the project of the book are. And I think a good place to start with this is to talk about what we sort of mean by health and why we focus on health and how it is both uh, sort of defined by capital, how it is how our very idea of what health is, is sort of shaped by our political economy itself. So early in the book, we say something like uh, health is a vulgar phenomenon. What we mean by that is it's important to understand that if you, if you just think of the concept of health itself, right, um, ill health is, or the threat ra rather of ill health is the threat that disciplines the labor force. Uh, health as abstracted to mean physical or cognitive capacity is used to define who is allowed to really identify as a part of society. Um, health is used in the sense to disqualify people from participating in civic and political life and to sort of draw boundaries around um, what degree of autonomy they're allowed to exercise over their own lives. Um, we talk about this a lot in, on Death Panel in relationship to a number of things, but including you know things like long-term care, which we see as sort of an arm of the carceral state, and you know, things like the the asylum system, uh, for for example, and so again, perhaps more uh, most importantly, and this is a major component I think of what BNI argue in health communism, because health is used to demarcate the quote unquote productive member of society from what is uh, really out in the open in mainstream political discourse, the burden of the unhealthy or the sick or the disabled. Um, I'm you know, saying the like, putative burden. Uh, I disagree, obviously, with this terminology, but this is really how it's talked about out in the open. Um, when this sort of interacts with the, uh, the threat of ill health, as I mentioned, with um, you know, participation in the labor force, for example, or loss of benefits or you name it, as a disciplinary force on the working class and on organized labor, what essentially happens with health as this socially and politically constructed designation is it is very literally used to limit the labor force. And in other words, to draw a line between the productive worker and the unproductive, what we call surplus in the book, and as these socially imagined categories, this distinction between the sort of unproductive body and the productive body does immense harm 
sort of forestalling these two groups from uniting themselves or imagining themselves as a solidaristic collectivity because a major component of sort of ascribing your identity as as worker or working class is often predicated on your, uh, again, on your productivity. Yeah, and I guess just to quickly build on what Artie said, what we're basically asking of people is to consider health very differently from the way that we're used to thinking about it as a sort of personal trait or characteristic. We're basically trained to think of health as an individual consumer good, not at the population level, but at the individual level. It's a kind of aspirational, positive quality that each of us needs to sort of work really hard in order to achieve if we want to be valued by society. And there are a lot of different words for all of the different things, which actually at the end of the day, you know, both define what health is and also commoditize it. But ultimately, health often becomes defined by the things that it's not. You know, health under capitalism is ultimately a impossibility. There's no way to sort of buy yourself the perfect body or ability to sort of withstand in perpetuity. You know, it's this kind of durable good that is guaranteed to break down. And under capitalism, as already saying, to attain health, you have to work and you must be productive and normative. And only then are you essentially entitled to the health that you can buy. And this fantasy of individual health under the political economic conditions of capitalism makes it appear as if health and capitalism are fundamentally kind of inextricable from each other. But the truth is, though, and this is really key, especially in the context of COVID and long COVID, is that health is actually a very violent architecture. It's a kind of negative phenomenon, and it's an economic system, not a personal trait. It's a kind of matrix of different types of things that become points where your body is commodified in the way that it interacts with the things that it needs to survive. And we're forced to self-finance the maintenance of our labor power through this framework of health to cure or repair ourselves essentially just for the purposes of returning a body to work that is out of work. And the production of death under capitalism is well understood, and a lot of people have written about this, but this book should be thought about more as a book about how capitalism keeps you alive. I think to also speak on that economic aspect of this and uh, what this burden framework is understood as economically, um, there is this term that we employ a lot on, on Death Panel and that we sort of write either through or around a lot in the book. We use some t- different terminology for it. But this idea of the economic valuation of life, which is something that I think is quite key to the way that even movement demands often end up being sometimes shaped around these questions, like when if you think about the Medicare for all debate uh, debates in 2020, there was there's so much ink spilled on oh it will be cheaper, uh, etc. Or you know this this and that argument about How economic much valuation. How much is it going to cost? Right, but and and this is I think indicative really of how so often. Uh, and this is one of the things that we, we try to really uh, unpack and, and walk through in the book. So often our discourse on health in the U.S. and and, and certainly broader than just a U.S. context, but um, relates much more to this cost of health than anything that you might think would be an actual priority. So, for instance, the priority is never someone's experience with the healthcare system, their ability to get treatment that they need without putting themselves into enormous debt. 
or in the case of something like trans healthcare, getting care without enduring basically society-wide political persecution and judgment that your care is somehow unnecessary or unworthy as, as an expense, basically as a public expense. And so I, I think about this uh, economic valuation of life framework in particular in relationship to two things. One is the discourse um, that is, I think, best exemplified by the writing in the Obama years of a tool Gawande and the sort of, uh, B, B mentioned this earlier, the sort of overutilization argument, which was in fact really popular in the Obama White House as the Affordable Care Act was being crafted. Um, and when I say very popular, I mean there were literally meetings where uh, I think the New York Times said it was, quote, required reading in the White House. And the idea was that the problem of the US healthcare system is its high cost, not the many barriers that are intentionally instituted to you know, keep people from care, and that this high cost was driven by people using too much healthcare. Again, as B mentioned, you saw this in the Medicare for All debate also in the 2020 election cycle, people saying uh, that as, as though if people suddenly got free care that they had been systematically denied for years, that it would be this huge uh, burden, it would be you know, economically ruinous and not something to celebrate, and as though people were going to start doing like recreational chemotherapy or something. Um, and then... The second thing that I think about a lot in relation to this is um, something we write about in a chapter called Border, which is a 1993 World Bank report called Investing in Health. Again, we, we write about this a little bit, so I won't go into it uh, too much, but essentially it was, it was this big document that the World Bank put together around the same time that they were starting to really very openly communicate to countries seeking World Bank funding that they wanted countries to essentially adapt their social welfare systems to be um, more privatized, slightly more like the U.S. Um, in, in the words of the World Bank report, uh, and we're not the first people to write about this, there's a, there's a large literature in social medicine about this, but um, that Within this report, the idea is that countries internationally should seek to institute private health insurance systems that publicly provided care, publicly provided health care should be only the domain of you know, something that is meant for the very, very poor, making it so that there would be a weak, a, a weak public insurance system for the very poor, basically only, which sounds very familiar to what we have in the, in the U.S., and I find, I'll read a short passage from this World Bank report, actually, because I find its language about this really indicative. They say, well, they, they start talking about health insurance as a category that is very different from the ways that we think about other forms of insurance, how with other forms of insurance, we're, we're readily socially able to accept the idea of moral hazard, as in we should protect the asset that's being insured because it's a social you know, it's a, it's a burden to more than just us. If the example that they use is for house insurance, if we burn down our house um, and then it, you know, makes it so that like that insurance pool has to has to pay for that. And they kind of complain. They, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but they sort of complain that uh, health insurance and, and health itself is not thought of uh, in this way. And they write again, I'll just quote from this. There is some moral hazard in the markets for house and vehicle insurance. The extreme form is when somebody burns down a house to collect the insurance or abandons a car and reports it stolen. But unlike consumption of too much health care, these actions are crimes, with penalties that may greatly exceed the value of the asset. 
In any case, the insurer's potential liability is limited to the easily determined market value of the asset. Although limitations on moral hazard and adverse selection are weaker in health insurance, it is harder to identify individual risks and still harder to attribute them to behavioral choices. There is no market value for the human body and no possibility of abandoning one that is worn out and acquiring a new one. The lack of a natural limit on costs, since the asset being insured, the body, has no price with which costs can be compared, distinguishes it from other insurable risks. Um, ending with, the difficulties in insurance markets carry over directly into markets for healthcare. If people have too much health insurance, they will have an incentive to use too much healthcare at too high of prices. Unfortunately, the difficulty of judging health care risks and the impossibility of placing a value on a living body make it impossible to determine how much is too much in health care and health insurance, nor is making a consumer pay more for health care a sure way of reducing only unnecessary demand. And so what's very important about this is sort of the, the message that essentially when we are making demands on what, however you want to call it, universal health care, uh, Medicare for all, single payer, um, federal universal single payer, whatever, what have you, we feel in so much of the, the I think, work that we do and the political education projects that we do and, and what Death Panel is, for example, uh, is surrounding this sort of the importance of this extremely uh, anti-austerity mindset that so many of the terms of the debate really are set already that it's very easy, I guess, to fall prey to um, these arguments that just trap you into this austerity space. Yeah, I mean, the problem is um, not that people are overutilizing healthcare; it's that it's impossible for any person under capitalism to be healthy, not just people who are already sick, ill, bad, or disabled. And this is where the surplus population and the surplus class really come in as important in the book, because while the surplus population does contain uh, people who might not be in the workforce, it also does contain the workforce as well. Um, and this sort of characteristic vulnerability that we like to think of, of the surplus class as being inherent to their existence, that in and of itself is part of the economic valuation of life. It's that as someone's quote unquote productivity diminishes, the way that we value them both as a human being in a sort of socio-political context, but also literally in the way that we evaluate policies changes. So this kind of valuation exists very literally in ways that we measure, like disability-adjusted life years or DALI, which is where you basically calculate someone's worth through an estimation of their lifetime earnings. And of course, if you have a work-limiting disability, your earnings are automatically valued as being lower. Therefore, you sort of are worth less uh, in technical terms within the way that we design policies. And so this is how people are made surplus conceptually, and it hinges not on any sort of intrinsic valuation, but um, economic valuation, which is why this category is something that we argue um, is actually large enough to contain both workers and non-workers, because there's always this threat of being made surplus that is part and parcel to the conditions of the workplace. And these two things fundamentally are portrayed as being a kind of binary or an opposite, the worker and the non-worker. If we think of like, for example, how in the United States, 
someone becomes certified for disability under the Social Security um, you know, Disability Insurance Program, SSDI, you're certified as being disabled if you can prove that you have a work-limiting disability, not just that you have any sort of verifiable disability. And you know, the thing about this framework, though, is despite the fact that it's an economic framework, uh, we treat it as a kind of biologic destiny and a personal framework. And health communism argues that this sort of translation is one of capitalism's greatest lies and that the surplus population is not in fact destined to be vulnerable. Um, we make the surplus vulnerable. And though uh, people who are valued less are widely regarded as a kind of drain, a fiscal and eugenic burden on the future of you know, survival of society, in actuality, you know, because of the way the state constructs itself and its own fiscal architecture, the state has constructed systems to reclaim this so-called uh, lost surplus population as you know, a, a actual site and source of financial production. And this hinges on the economic valuation of life, which is you know, essentially preferential towards the allocating of resources and the provisioning of care as being things that are better left to the markets. Right. That is also, I think, a, a very important component of the, the book overall. This, as, as I said before, I think the idea that, you know, socialized medicine is not you know, provided in the United States, for example, or is not instituted in the United States or, or other uh, capitalist countries, for example, um, because of um, cruelty or as though it's some sort of ironic thing, this argument that it's it's sort of um, that it, it's it's strange that in a in a we, we're so often used to hearing in a country with such largesse, right, that we would not provide health care to to everybody, that we would not care for all among us, um, one of the things that we argue, and I think one of the really the, the key parts of the book, um, this comes early, but then I think it shapes a lot of the analysis um, uh, throughout it and the things that we talk about, is that it's quite important actually to understand if, as I mentioned before, you know, ill health is the, the threat that disciplines the labor force, right? And that, that the division between the, the healthy, productive, uh, individual and the unhealthy, you know, sick or disabled person is this kind of essential tension, right, between what is constituted then as a worker or working class versus what is a surplus individual or, or part of the surplus class. Then if we understand those distinctions, what we can also then realize is when you then look to the places where um, the surplus populations tend to go and you look to the sites where basically the capitalist state sort of recuperates or rearticulates the surplus body um, into sort of a new a uh, new vessel for economic productivity into in a different form essentially it, it, it becomes quite easy to see that it's not simply the uh, quote-unquote again productivity or economic productivity of work that is exploited um, among for instance, working people, there is also sort of economic exploitation that happens of of and through these sites where the surplus is rearticulated into a site for profit. Well, and even and especially in the very processes that we use to certify who's like a verifiably true deserving candidate, these are all ways of... of um, articulating the fact that the landscape of health is a process of extraction. And I guess... Um, as a sort of final point um, that I'll walk us through this uh, process that we're talking about that we've sort of been laying out for, for you all now, 
is something we try and name in the book as extractive abandonment. And the term extractive abandonment is a very obvious riff on Ruth Wilson Gilmore's theory of organized abandonment, which is you know, an idea that she perhaps most um, famously talks about in her book, Golden Gulag, which is about a lot of things, but also about how the state makes itself through the expansion of carceral practices. And organized abandonment is really the state's capacity to enable the organization, disorganization, or um, outright abandonment of various factors of production. And so the state's power, uh, responsibility, and purpose essentially becomes defined by the ways that it counts, sorts, organizes, disorganizes both surplus labor power and surplus populations. And so this if we think about this, uh, you know, really literally, you know, we create sort of jobs and whole industries and diversified revenue streams from the maintenance of um, non-workers who capital, capital technically, you know, says that it no longer wants people that are sort of rejected and kicked out of the workforce. Um, and as Wilson Gilmore writes, you know, the state makes things, but it's also a product of what's made and destroyed. And the state is a process ultimately. And so, in the process of maintaining vulnerable life or the surplus class, right, we have this whole means of constructing both fiscal pathways, physical infrastructure, places where people receive care, you know, jobs, et cetera. So it's, it's much more than just a uh, sort of immediate one-to-one -one, uh, idea of extraction of like, okay, here's XYZ, bad actor private company and they're coming in and they're you know taking what is theoretically a good system and they're making it bad because they're greedy that's fundamentally not what we're saying you know what we're saying is that that is uh, more reflective of of the fundamental design of the system that this private actor is participating in and we owe a great deal uh, to Wilson Gilmore for her work, and this is just you know one of the main ideas that's contained within organized abandonment, but it's important to underscore that this state is essentially not static. Um, it's a constantly changing creation. Um, you know, reproduction and destruction through these principles of abandonment become embedded not just in institutions, but in systems, and even more broadly in logics and entire frameworks for seeing and understanding the world. And as organized abandonment shows us, these decisions to make the state through the abandonment of some populations flourishes under political and fiscal austerity, but is not immune to other political economic frameworks for the valuation of life and other logics with which we can both destroy the old and build the new. And so in this very obvious and intentional engagement with Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work and the theory of organized abandonment, we essentially tried to take this idea and unite it with an idea from a scholar of Marxism and disability named Marta Russell uh, called the money model of disablement or the money model of disability. And Marta Russell's money model of disability basically theorizes that the way that the state makes itself is also through the commodification of survival um, of the things that bodies need that we need to survive, like medical care, nursing homes, uh, medical supplies, uh, down to the kinds of jobs and the education and training to qualify people for those jobs and the certification boards that stand to sort of hold standards, that these all construct both part of the state um, and the state's way of dealing with um, the surplus class, but that they're also really important um, avenues for surplus profit. And uh, what happens essentially, um, and what Russell argues, is that these 
moments where people become marked as surplus or places that are meant to contain or care for people who are non-workers, they act essentially as a kind of pass-through mechanism to make the person available to the state, not as a worker who produces surplus profit through their labor necessarily, but as a site of creating um, surplus profit through other means. And so a disabled person who's a non-worker ultimately becomes valuable not as a person, but because they occupy a nursing home bed that's guaranteed a certain amount of federal funding every month. And just because they're there, um, that funding is given. There's no contingency or requirement for that person to have any sort of minimum quality of life. The state only conceives of them as a body in a bed. And this is you know, passing through the economic valuation of life. And essentially, that bed becomes fiscal architecture it becomes a way that the state makes itself, and it becomes more important than the person who is in it. You know, prisons and jails are not just disciplinary sites, but they're also political economic armature. They are ways of passing money and moving money around under our fiscal systems. And these population-level powers of fiscal control are much more subtle and sometimes difficult to describe. So essentially, extractive abandonment is the way in which a state tries to build itself and its political economy through this kind of optimization of the population at a demographic level. The construction of health, the commodification of health, Profit essentially lives in these spaces between bodies and the counting of bodies, the measuring of bodies, the creation and destruction of bodies, essentially anywhere where capitalism touches illness, disease, disability, and death, and the things that we're sort of you know, consuming to stave this off in theory. And in and of itself, this is not some sort of intent to do harm, but the system has created a capacity to le levy harm at the population level. And essentially, in a political economy which is built on systems of extractive abandonment, the state exists to facilitate a capacity for profit balanced always against the amount of extractable capital or health of the individual subject. And this is fundamentally going to work against any sort of goals that the left has towards any kind of health justice, which is why we're arguing that at the intersection of these forces, there's a really important core relationship that health has to capitalism, and that that's a kind of important space for us to both examine and, I think, uh, attack uh, if we want to destroy the way that the state makes health a commodity and the state extracts from us, then we have to look at how the state builds itself through creating the capacity for these kinds of relationships. Um, so we didn't have a chance to do this in our talk, but I wanted to uh, in the live version of the talk for the socialism conference, but I did promise everyone online that we would uh, be reading a, the first that you'd hear it right here first, the first excerpt from health communism. So without further ado, I'm going to read a short excerpt from the book uh, from the first chapter, which is called surplus to hear the full episode. Become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalog of patron-only episodes. And be the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops. With love, the Death Panel.